Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. In the Buddha, his teaching, and the fellowship most excellent, I take my refuge until enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other transcendent virtues, May I attain Buddhahood for the sake of all that lives. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace behind. Hello, everyone. It is so good to sit with you, to be with you. So here's what I've got. The reasons why our marriage might work. Because you wear pink, but write poems about bullets and gravestones. Because you yell at your keys when you lose them and laugh loudly at your own jokes. Because you can hold a pistol, cut a pig, because you memorize songs, even commercials from 30 years back, and sing them when vacuuming. You have soft hands. Because when we moved, the contents of what you packed were written inside the boxes. Because you think swans are overrated and kind of stupid. Because you drove me to the train station. You drove me to Minneapolis. You drove me to Providence. Because you underline everything you read and circle the things you think are important and put stars next to the things you think I should think are important and write notes in the margins about all the people you're mad at and my name almost never appears there. Because you make that pork recipe you found in the Frida Kahlo cookbook. Because when you read that essay about Rilke, you underline the whole thing except the part when Rilke says love means to deny the self and to be consumed in flames. Because when the lights are off, the curtains drawn, and an additional sheet is nailed over the windows, you still believe someone outside can see you. And one day, five summers ago, when you couldn't put gas in your car, when your fridge was so empty, not even leftovers or condiments, there was a single 20-ounce bottle of Mountain Dew 
which you paid for with your last damn dime because you once overheard me say that I liked it. This poem, this poem is called Mountain Dew Commercial, disguised as a love poem by Matthew Olsman. And it may seem like an odd poem to start a Dharma talk with, but I believe that it captures very beautifully the kind of ordinary, whole-bodied, whole-souled love that we need to have for ourselves and for our lives in order to be free. The kind of love we need to practice the Dharma. And, you know, I've always thought that poetry is the every person's Dharma because it shows directly what our lives are about without explaining. That's just the difference between having a delicious meal and just reading the menu. So it pairs well, I think, with Dharma. In the beginning, in the beginning we come to practice and there's so much happening. There's so much changing, so much challenging us. And it's exciting and difficult and captivating. It has us in its grip. If we've gotten past the first period of zazen, the first period of meditation, it has us in its grip. But then after a while, um, we go through a period of, of amnesia. We, we, we sort of slide into it. It gets challenging to practice. It gets challenging to sit specifically, and we forget why we're doing it. We forget how important it is for us. And the original fire becomes a cooling ember. And of course, this can happen with anything in our lives. Anything that is not nurtured, that is not fueled, dies over time. The only thing is that this is about our lives, about being, living our lives more fully, more freely. And so when life, when our very life gets in the way, illness gets in the way, relationships get in the way, work, children, parents. Well, first we can look right there. What does it mean? for these things to get in the way when they too are our lives. But we divide them into the many do's and shoulds of a life. And sometimes we think they're not practice. But sometimes it does get harder to turn in, especially when, when turning in hurts. You know, maybe it hurts physically. If we're ill, we're in pain. It is difficult to sit. It is difficult when it hurts emotionally, when we can't stand to be in our own skin. 
to be with ourselves, as I often say. Even though in many cases, not always, but in many cases, this is exactly, exactly what will help us heal. And sometimes we don't know. We don't know if it will help or if it will make things worse. And so we just have to try. Remembering that first inkling we had when we realized life doesn't have to be this hard. When we realized there might be, if not an easier way, a smoother path, a fuller path. If we could remember this, if we could, if we could hear our own whisper that said, look, then we, we would know that this love that Olsman is describing, this love that I'm offering, presenting tonight, is not about denying the self or being consumed in flames. It's more of a, of a slow, steady burn. And instead of denying anything, how do you deny a self that is not there? Instead of giving up anything, it's about taking it all in, like the, the whole thing, every single item contained in every single box we have been lugging around all the many years of our lives. And it's about knowing how to use every one of those items as a resource for love. I speak about love often. And the reason is that I believe it is what is needed to save our lives. You know, and just after I finished writing this talk this afternoon, I got a newsletter from The Atlantic. And uh, the headline said, America is pursuing happiness in all the wrong places. And the tagline, the US is undergoing a crisis of our personal and shared sense of meaning as polarization rises and institutions erode. The solution is as simple as it is difficult. Love one another. It's written by Arthur Brooks. He's the former longtime president of a public policy think tank. And a few years ago, he, he quit his job to teach about happiness at Harvard, <laughs> of all places, and to write for The Atlantic about happiness. And the way to get there, he says, is to love one another. There are many ways to talk about love. But this is what I'm speaking about when I speak about love. Loving who you are and what you do and how you live so completely that nothing is left out. 
the parts of yourself that you are crazy about, the parts you can't stand. And do I need to say that the same goes for others? It means to love beyond good and bad, right and wrong, this and that. It means to love so completely that you can no longer call it love. You can just call it life, your life. Maybe don't even call it that, just live it. You know, when we say we're going to save all sentient beings, the four bodhisattva vows, we're going to put an end to desires, master all dharmas, attain the unattainable. We're really saying, I will love this life completely. <clears throat> I will save this life completely. I will practice and realize and actualize leaving nothing and no one out. And I won't just say I'm going to do this. I'm just going to do it until it becomes as natural as breathing. One of my favorite passages in the Vimalakirti Sutra is the moment when hundreds of thousands of beings are all crowding into Vimalakirti's house. Vimalakirti, the, the layman who was said to be as enlightened as the Buddha and who would go into the places that monastics would not go. You go into the brothels and the farmhouses and the bars. And in this case, he's manifesting himself as sick. He's made himself sick in order to teach them, them, everyone. And, and we shouldn't just rush past this line. He made himself sick in order to, to teach everyone. Meaning, when I get sick, there's an opportunity to let it liberate me. There's an opportunity to see something so simple and so difficult and so profound that it can be potentially life-changing. And so all of these hundreds of thousands of beings, anyone from the king and the queen, the townsfolk, and then some 8,000 bodhisattvas, 500 disciples, a great number of chakras, brahmas, lokapalas, and many hundreds of thousands of gods and goddesses all crowd into Vimalakirti's tiny house. And when I read a passage like this in the sutras, I essentially think inconceivable. They're trying to tell me that what is happening right now, what is being described right now is beyond imagining. Because anything I can imagine Anything I can conceive of is too limited. And so they all follow Manjushri to visit Vimalakirti because the Buddha has asked Manjushri to inquire how Vimalakirti is. 
he's actually asked a bunch of bodhisattvas and they've all said no he's too scary <laughs> he's gonna engage us in dharma encounter he's gonna beat us to a pulp we don't want to go and finally manjushri says well this is really hard but yes i will go and so they all follow him and crowd into the little house and magically the house becomes empty to accommodate everyone and somehow these hundreds of thousands of beings all fit into this one room house and except for the couch where Vimalakirti is lying there's not a single seat not a single chair and Shariputra <laughs> poor Shariputra who's the fall guy in the sutras who's always mm, uh, he's shown up a bit he, he always is made to look a little bit dumb in order to ask the question that everybody wants to ask but is too embarrassed to do so so that he can be taught shariputra looks around and he thinks to himself there's not even a chair in here where are all these buddhas and bodhisattvas going to sit now again this may seem like silly but think that the people who wrote down these teachings they weren't mucking about you know they had no time to muck about they had devoted their lives to your liberation my liberation so none of what is written down is extra None of it should be taken unquestioningly, but I think we do well to take it and, and investigate it. And so Shariputra says, you know, where is everybody going to sit? A reasonable question, except they're not there to engage the reason. They're not there to debate. They're not even there on the surface to discuss the Dharma. They are there to free themselves. And the Malakirti knows that. And so he reads Shariputra's mind and he says, Reverend Shariputra, did you come here for the sake of the Dharma or for the sake of a chair? <laughs> that may be the single best line in all of the sutras. Did you come here for the Dharma or did you come for a chair? When you first sat down to do Zazen, did you come for liberation or did you come for company, comfort, escape? And all the many reasons why we come to practice, they are not wrong but they could also not be the Dharma in the way that Vimalakirti is pointing to it. Because just before I said, well, nothing is excluded, nothing is left out. Exactly, but we have to know that and we have to use it that way. And so Shariputra Abhashed says, no, of course, I came here for the Dharma. I did not come for the sake of a chair. And Savimalakirti says, Reverend Shariputra, those who are interested in the Dharma are not interested in a chair. 
and here now I'm paraphrasing, they're not interested in words or the intellect. They're not interested in the three realms or the three treasures. They're not interested in producing or destroying. They're not interested in the Four Noble Truths or in liberation. And the list goes on. Reverend Shariputra, if you are interested in the Dharma, you should take no interest in anything. What? You know, when someone asks you, how's the show? How's your date? How's the food? And you say, it was interesting. All the theory, all the practices, all the dharmas, the Malakirti is saying, do not be interested in them. Don't be interested in what I have to say. Just practice. Like in the Kyoju Kaimon, Master Dogen's commentary to the precepts, the 10th grave precept, realize the intimacy of things. Do not defile the three treasures. And someone asked me, well, how can you defile the three treasures? The Dharma cannot be defiled. And I said, exactly. But that precept is pointing to exactly this. And Master Dogen essentially says it. He says, living the Dharma with the whole body and mind is the heart of wisdom and compassion. All virtues return to the ocean of reality. You should not comment on them, just practice them, realize them, and actualize them. My first teacher, Dadaroshi, would say to a monastic, you know, can you do X? And the monk would say, I'll do my best. And Roshi said, no, no, don't try, don't do your best, just do it. Just love them, I would say, giving your last damn dime to your liberation. The fridge is empty. There's nothing to show in it, except this last one can of Mountain Dew, of all things. And you take that and awaken. You see, you take the aching back, you take the broken heart, you take the shitty job, the child's tantrum, the thought that says, I can't, I can't, I can't. And you love that so thoroughly that it sets you free. That's what Mimalakirti is saying. And that's why this is not special. It's what I, why I chose this poem, you know, that shows a love that is so ordinary. And in that ordinariness, magnificent. So to, to sit down on our seat, to count our breath, to let go of a thought, is as ordinary as losing our keys and finding them. It's as, un, uh, as um, ordinary as underlying passages in a book that you want to remember. And then slowly and steadily letting those passages become your life.
I speak about love because it is what's needed to save our lives. I speak about it so that we'll know we don't have to worry if we don't understand. If we don't understand the teachings right away, we don't understand our lives or aspects of our lives. In fact, that's a very good start to let what we don't know be larger than what we think we know. To be willing to turn again and again toward what is most important. Even though at times it seems dry, it seems pointless, too little, too late. See, all of that is irrelevant. That's what this kind of love shows us. The author of The Cloud of Unknowing says, and again, I'm paraphrasing slightly, with all due reverence, I go as far as to say that it is useless to think you can nourish your contemplative work by considering your or reality's attributes, your kindness, your dignity, or by thinking about the bodhisattvas or about the joys of heaven, wonderful as these might be. I believe that this kind of activity is no longer of any use to you. It is far better to let your mind rest in awareness in existence and to love and praise, mm, to let your mind rest in awareness in naked existence, awareness of naked existence. I'm going to read that sentence again. It is far better to let your mind rest in awareness of naked existence and to love and praise reality to love and praise your life for what it is it's like that thank you for listening uh, if you would like to listen to more talks you can visit my website at vanessasuisedaughtered.org and if you would like to offer a donation, know that they're always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha. And they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.